Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight, and our guest is Hilary Webb, the managing editor of Anthropology of Consciousness, a peer-reviewed journal of the Society for the Anthropology of Consciousness. Hilary received her undergraduate degree in journalism from New York University, and she went on to earn an MA in Consciousness Studies from Goddard College and a PhD in Psychology from Saybrook, Saybrook University. She's the author of a number of books, Exploring Shamanism, Traveling Between the Worlds, Conversational Conversations with Contemporary Shamans. And the book we're going to discuss today, Hillary, you will correct me if I mispronounce it, <laughs> Yanantin and Masintin in the Andean World, Complementary Dualism in Modern Peru. Perfect. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I understand we're speaking to you from southern Maine. That's right. Thanks for having me. Welcome, Hillary. It's such a pleasure. First of all, I had never heard of the field of the anthropology of consciousness. That's totally fascinating to me. What is it? Yes, well, it's a subdivision of anthropology, as you would gather. And, um, you know, I think anybody who's involved in the anthropology of consciousness is probably going to have a little bit different definition. For me, it's really um, a look at different cultures or even cultures within our own culture, looking at how do people relate to this thing that we call consciousness? What are they, what is their definition? How do they relate to it in terms of um, going into altered states? Um, either through journeying, psychedelic medicines, um, that kind of thing. How do they use these um, ordinary or non-ordinary experiences of consciousness in order to make meaning of the world? So essentially, it's looking at people's relationships to that thing that makes us so human, you know, inner inner self and, and the conscious process. Mm-hmm. The book that we're going to be discussing focuses on a concept called Yanantin, and I was very curious as to what aroused your interest in it. Mm. Yeah, um, you know, the first time I ever heard the word Yanantin was in 2001, when I went to Peru the very first time to study the shamanic cultures and concepts um, of that area of the world, and I was sitting in the Sacred Valley in Peru, and watching an old shaman create a despacho. And a despacho is basically a ceremonial offering to the earth. And it's kind of a, a beautiful mandala that's made out of things like flower petals and candy and confetti, things as exotic as llama fetus, llama fat, little icons. And each, each item represents something specific for the healing of self, other, and planet. And one of the first items to be included within the despacho was this little figurine, and it was split down the middle, half of it pink, half of it yellow. And the old shaman said, this is Yanantin, complementary opposites. And, you know, it's sort of hard to uh, really sort of logically express my my reaction. It was um, just this idea of complementary opposites. Something about it grabbed me. And what I was to learn later was that complementary opposites is really the the basis of the indigenous Andean Peruvian philosophical model. And, you know, whereas in the Western world, there is, I think, a tendency within our philosophical um, viewpoints, within our scientific viewpoints, to see the world as made up of antagonistic opposites, where there's this 
battle being waged between the two and one try is trying to um, you know, conquer the other. Whereas in the Andean model, it's very complementary. So really, I just was fascinated by this concept. And when it came time for me to do my doctoral research, I really wanted to go back and look at what that means, psychologically speaking. How does it differ when you look at the world through this lens of complementarity rather than one of antagonism? So that's sort of where that came from. It's it's almost a metaphor for the new consciousness, isn't it? I think so. I think so. I hope so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, when I when I first started the book, um, it it started off almost like PhD thesis, um, and I thought, okay, well, I can skim through this, but I couldn't. It kept on grabbing me. Um, and, and I had to read the whole thing cover to cover. It was fascinating, uh, which kind of surprised me. Um, I, I admit that I did skip over all of the footnotes and the, the references, <laughs> but the, the view that it gave of these, first of all, these two fascinating shamans and their eloquence in, in expressing what is such a profound worldview. I really would love for you to, to somehow try and share or, or encompass the highlights of this for our listeners because it was so fascinating. Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was such a process for me. And, you know, you bring up the sort of the scholarly aspect of it. And it's funny because I was going, I went to Peru for my first uh, fieldwork trip as going in with my scholarly mindset and thinking, okay, I've got to get data and facts and figures. And I'm going to write this ethnography about um, how it is to be an Andean person looking at the world through this complementary lens and, you know, thinking of it very sort of rationally and linearly. And when I got there, really the first conversation I had with Amado, who is my primary research participant, he's a young shaman, um, you know, I sat, sat down and I opened up my, news, my um, notebook and I pulled out a pen and I said, okay, how do you define Yanantine? And he sort of smiled at me and said, well, out of respect, I don't define Yanantine. And may I suggest that you download it from the cosmos instead? <laughs> and of course, I, you know, being in my sort of rational mind, I went into this panic mode of what does that mean? And, you know, I, I don't believe that's possible. And I, I don't understand. And how am I going to face my professors when I come home and this, that and the other? And um, what he meant by that was essentially a couple things. One was that he really wanted me to have an experience myself of this complementary worldview rather than just interviewing people and, and asking them what their perspective was. And specifically, he wanted me to go into ceremony with um, San Pedro, which is a mescaline cactus that has been used ceremonially in that region of the world for thousands of years. And so, you know, I write in the book a lot about the mental wrangling I had to go through both uh, sort of personally and this idea of do I really want to go into an altered state like this and not only feeling nervous about it, but feeling this um, skepticism. Can I really gain knowledge in that way? So really what came out of this, what started off as a very sort of traditional ethnography, turned into what's called an autoethnography. So basically me using my 
emotions and some of my experience in order to illuminate this concept of Yanantine. Mm-hmm. And I was really fortunate to go to um, a school and, you know, I've my graduate work, uh, as you said, my master's degree at Goddard College and my PhD at Saybrook University. Very fortunate that those are two places that really are so willing to look at and and let you balance both the intellectual and the personal in order to come up with this very holistic way of knowing a subject. So the book is really a lot about my, um, a combination of the scholarly aspects of this idea and also my personal experiences. So, and that made it really fun to write and really rewarding for me on a personal level. I thought it was interesting that, um, Amato talks about learning the, the, mystery from his grandfather and how it had been underground for many, many years, if not centuries. Um, Tell us, and and yet this tradition goes back thousands of years. So tell us what happened, uh, particularly during the conquest of Spain. What happened to these traditions? Right. Well, in about the 1500s, you know, of course, there was the Spanish conquest where the Catholic Church and the conquistadors came in and and began the conversion of the Indians. And um, it was it's interesting to see how, despite the fact you know Catholicism came in and and has really made a, a significant presence in um, in the teachings and in the traditions of the land, they did somewhat go underground in some levels, and in some levels they became uh, syncretized, meaning you know they took the the Catholic uh, teachings and and molded them to their own complementary worldview in their own way. But certainly, when you know when the conquistadors came in, uh, there was this over time subtle and not so subtle degradation of these traditions and uh, this idea that these traditions are evil or bad in some way. And, you know, as time went on, Western culture continues to infiltrate and not, you know, the, the quote unquote evil aspects of it becomes, oh, this is just, um, you know, superstition and there's no based in fact. So you have both Western religion and Western science sort of going in and saying, you know, these traditions have no real meaning and no real use. But, you know, when you go to Peru, you see they really have not disappeared at all. And what Amado was telling me was that his grandfather really hid his practices for a long time because they just weren't accepted either by his family, his community, and he kind of held them to himself. And when Amato came along, Amato showed an aptitude and had an initiation experience that I refer to in the book. And at that point, his grandfather decided, you know, I think that uh, the teaching should be passed on to my grandson. So um, that's kind of part of Amato's story. And, and I think that's uh, the story of many of the young shamans in Peru today. Mm-hmm. I remember interviewing Hank Wesselman um, about, about his book about a, a Hawaiian kahuna who was really the last um, in his lineage from Kamehameha. And he transmitted the knowledge uh, for the first time to be written down because he was afraid it would be lost. Um, do you find in Peru that this this um, knowledge or mystery um, is being revived and coming above ground? I do. Um, And ironically, perhaps for some of the same reasons that it went below ground to begin with. I mean, I think that 
you know, the Western interest in shamanism and, and people, many people going to Peru in order to get a, an experience of Peruvian shamanism, it, you know, it's like anything, it's got a double-edged sword. But one of the things that it has done that seems to be positive is with these Westerners coming in and saying, hey, this is something we want to learn. This is something that matters to us. It's important. I think a lot of the younger people are starting to go, okay, wait, maybe I need to revisit and um, look at you know, what I consider to be the importance of my own cultural traditions. And so there is, you know, some of that comes from, hey, we've got some gringos coming down and spending lots of money. I think I'd like to make some money, so I'll become a shaman. There is definitely that. But there is also the real pure, um, you know, it's time has come round again. And that's cyclical, you know, you can very much look at it in the sort of indigenous cyclical, cyclical viewpoint of, okay, here we are again. And, um, so it is it is coming back in many ways, in both positive and perhaps negative um, masks. But nevertheless, I think it's it's a positive thing in in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you've just joined us, this is New Consciousness Review, and we're speaking with Hillary Webb, discussing complementary dualism in modern Peru, Yanantin and Masintin. Um, So what do you think are the core precepts or or the core concepts um, that they're trying to preserve and get across that are are making their resurgence now? Mm. Boy, um, I'd say, you know, there are a lot of healing traditions and then the the mesa, which is the the altar that is used in in Peru. you know, certainly in terms of the work that I do, um, both with Peruvian shamanism in general and, uh, or shaman, excuse me, shamanism in general, and specifically the, the Peruvian take on it, um, this idea of the complementary nature of the world. I think West, the Western world did come in and bring its antagonistic viewpoint, this dichotomy between good and evil, male and female, inner and outer. And they're really, I think, beneath so many of the spiritual and social practices of um, the indigenous viewpoint is this complementary perspective where, um, you know, in some ways we could equate it to the Taoist perception of yin-yang. I mean, it's, it's slightly different than that, but there is that idea that the world is upheld and kept in balance by complementary opposites, and you can't have one without the other. So I think there really is a spiritual and social commitment to upholding that idea that that the world is a benevolent, complementary place, and um, that it is possible to engage with the spirits of the land and the elements of the universe in order to bring us back into balance and into complementarity. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. You you went into some of the the polarities like um, good and evil, and it's interesting that in the West we're always trying to be um, either you know you're you're either good or you're not good. You know, there's there's always this either or thinking, whereas the um, message that came through from your book was that, uh, I guess a bit of yin-yang, was that there's this gray area where the two meet and that it can flip-flop from good to evil in, in an instant. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. You know, I mean, when I first started 
of this whole quest. I think, you know, there was my intellectual intellectual interest in it, but I think there was really quite a lot of personal um, uh, desire to sort of reconcile my own, you know, relationship to the Western antagonistic viewpoint and this idea of you can only be one thing or the other or not both. When I first started doing this study, I came across a Time magazine article entitled What Makes Us Good or Evil?, and um, I'll read an excerpt from that because to me it really sort of sums up this idea that I was trying to reconcile. Um, and okay, so the, the magazine article says this, if the entire human species were a single individual, that person would long ago have been declared mad. The insanity would not lie in the anger and darkness of the human mind, though it can be a black and raging place indeed. And certainly it wouldn't lie in the transcendent goodness of the mind, one so sublime we fold it into a larger soul. The madness would lie instead in the fact that both of these qualities, the savage and the splendid, can exist in one creature, one person, often in one instant. So I think you can, you know, you could look at that quote and, you know, look at it in different ways. But for me, it seems like, according to this article, it doesn't matter which we choose, either the splendid or the savage within ourselves, as long as we align ourselves thoroughly and completely with one side and, and not the other. And then only if we choose one, the splendid or the savage, are we sane and healthy, which to me seems um, sort of insane. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, you know, when I was down in Peru and talking about this idea of good and evil and, you know, sane and insane and splendid and savage... The idea is, it's sort of hard to reconcile because we are so used to dividing things into good and bad. Um, But generally, the idea that was passed on to me by my research participants is that, you know, energy is neutral. It can be changed from good to bad, bad to good in an instant. Um, And really part of the shaman's work is to be able to change this sort of quote-unquote negative, heavy, bad energy to a creative energy. So within each, you know, you look at the um, yin-yang symbol and within each um, field, there's a a little spot. It contains, each one contains the other. So it's never all or nothing, either and, um, it's both and. Mm -hmm. So, So it was just sort of this idea that, you know, when you see something, the, the example gave, if somebody throws a curse at you, you should thank them because it's free energy that you can then use for good. And part of the mission that we need to do is to not get caught in our first reaction about something. To autom- We should not automatically label it good or bad, but to work with it and see what it's, what's the complexity of it and what are the elements within it. And, um, and then I find that to be kind of an exciting challenge. Yeah, I'd like you to expand on the word complexity because that really gave a, a, a very rich dimension to the discussion. Mm, yeah. Well, I mean, to me, complexity is, you know, the opposite of reductionism. I think we often in this culture, whether we're talking spirituality, whether we're talking science, whether we're talking um, judgments about this or that, we, we become very reductionistic. And that's part of our antagonistic, dualistic perspective. You know, it's either or. It's either mind or it's matter. We're either good or we're bad. You know, in contrast, you know, there really is, uh, to me so much more complexity to, to everything. Um, you know, you, you look at any situation and you're going to find, um, varying shades of black, white, gray, everything in between. And, you know, while on the one hand, how many people, how many of us, you know, in our daily life, we're trying to get our errands done. We're trying to do this. Do we really have time to always unpack 
the levels of complexity in any situation. Well, we don't. But I think what is even just acknowledging, okay, there are likely levels of um, nuances that I'm never going to be able to be aware of. So I'm just going to, you know, incorporate that and not make split second uh, judgments or decisions or, or whatnot. So it's also the complexity that gives a richness to our experience, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and I think we can often give a lot of sort of intellectual lip service to this idea, <clears throat> excuse me, of, of uh, the gray areas. And sure, sure, you know, I know, you know, can't have one without the other, and there's always gray areas, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think in practice, it tends to be harder for us to um, to go there. I think that's our, our reactions are often automatically antagonistic rather than complementary. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah. The the other polarity that uh, I'd like you to discuss is the the man woman polarity. I was um, delighted to learn about the role of the female in traditional Indigenous Peruvian societies. Mm. Yeah, well, you know, going back uh, historically, um, there really was this uh, equality. Um, you know, while men and women might have typically different jobs, let's say, that didn't make one job lesser than the other. It just meant, you know, perhaps uh, men and women had um, specific talents or skills, you know, that that for particular um, jobs within the community. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think... There is, you know, again, we tend to polarize often in our daily practice, the male, female, you know, men are like this, women are like this. And to a certain extent, there's mm, version, you know, they have these sort of idealized versions of what men are and women are, but it's a lot of working with energies. And when I, the, the title of the book is Yanantine and Masintine in the Andean world. And I haven't talked too much about Masintine yet, which is, um, if Yanantine, let's say, is the noun, it's male and female, Masintine is the verb. It's the process that, say, male and female go through in order to move from an antagonistic relationship through to complementarity. So you have um, what I call the four T's, the tupai, which is the meeting, the tinkwi, the testing of boundaries, the take, the union, and the truhi, the separation. And so it's just basically this um, very elegant dance that they see as sort of the cosmological pattern um, between any two elements. But in this case, we're talking about male and female. So, you know, towards the final stages of this uh, dance, the male and female find out what are their strengths together? What are their, what is their um, different callings that together make a more complete whole? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a very, it's a very exciting pattern to look at. It it was very eloquently described where you have the, the first meeting where, you know, passion and, and lust and love come together. And then this the second T where they um, kind of explore each other's boundaries, explore the fit. You know, they have rows and they come back together and it's this testing period. And then it matures into the third T um, which is what you call the, the dyadic couple, where they recognize their uh, complementary roles in, in the marriage. And uh, th th this is such a metaphor for society in general. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I find that this can be this whole um, process. It really applies to so many different things. Um, you know, after reading my book, I had somebody from the UK call me up and say, hey, you know what, I want to apply this to leadership roles. And, you know, how do you engage with people on this level, looking at it through these four T's? And somebody else who uh, does couple counseling saying, okay, how do we can apply this to sort of a counseling position? And um, I find that really exciting because I really think that it is um, some, in some way a, a beautiful rhythm that we can kind of, a lens, as a lens, we can look at the world through. And I certainly know, you know, um, in my relationship, let's say with my fiance, and we're having a disagreement about something. And um, it's kind of fun to, you know, I can be upset or passionate or angry or, or something about whatever interaction that we're having, but at the same time, sort of step out and laugh and go, okay, here we are doing the four T's. Isn't this funny? Mm -hmm. And uh, that makes it a little bit, um, I don't know, makes it, um, I don't know, somehow sweeter. Um, in, in a society that is really largely subsistence-based, you can see where there would be an absolute necessity for um, a partnership uh, to really survive life. And, and uh, you describe partnerships that could be between uh, male and female or, or um, two males or two females. Um, whereas in the West, you don't really uh, have that emphasis and it's much more common for people to to be on their own probably i'm pretty sure they're not happier but um what i i was amused when you said uh, you mentioned your fiance because in the book you were talking about looking for your own compliment and they said oh it's coming it's coming so is this the one that you envisioned in your vision quest well, you know, it's actually a beautiful thing because this, uh, my fiance, I've known him for about 12 years. He actually is the one who got me to go to Peru in the first place 10 years ago or so. And um, he and I have sort of had an off and on again relationship. We've been together. We've been friends. We've not talked for a while. We've been friends again. And I can really look at our relationship and say, wow, we really did go through these stages and, and continue to. I don't think it's something so linear that you get to the final fourth stage and you're done. I think it's, you know, you cycle back and forth and in different areas of your relationship, you're in different places on the on the scale or what you, whatever you want to call it. Um, but certainly uh, he and I sort of resumed our relationship three years ago about the time I was in the middle of uh, middle to end of my research. So I, I do believe that that was part of that process. And um, yeah, learning between the two of us, all the sort of angst that we went through was really part of the dance and a, and a beautiful part of the dance because it helped us learn about each other. It helped us learn about ourselves. And I think it um, helped us trust not just each other, but the relationship itself as a third thing, as, as a sort of holism that encompasses both of us. So that was a, that's a lovely process. Mm -hmm. Do you think you would have um, been able to arrive at the insights that you did without the use of San Pedro? You know, um, I, I definitely think it's possible. I think that the thing that, I think part of the reason that they wanted me to work with the San Pedro 
is that, um, you know, we really, whatever our cultural viewpoint is, it really sticks to your ribs. It clings no matter how much. I mean, I had done a lot of spiritual psychological work before I started this process, but still um, I could see, you know, the moment they brought up the San Pedro, how some of my own Western biases jumped right in. So in some ways it's hard to, it's, it's hard to escape the whatever cultural model we're brought up in. So what the San Pedro does, in my opinion, or perhaps any um, psychedelic um, plant medicine, is that it really puts you in a place where you are able to step out of your cultural biases and your cultural habits of mind. It's kind of the rocket fuel that allows you to step outside of yourself and go, oh, okay, here's here's something different. I mean... Um, you know, I often bring up this quote, uh, the, uh, um, I think it was Einstein who said, you can't solve a problem with the same consciousness that created it. And what San Pedro does is um, create a new consciousness for you so that you can um, really just look at the world differently um, for, for a certain amount of time. And, and the beautiful thing about working with it in a shamanic system is that they have ways of psycho helping you psycho integrate it, meaning you can take whatever you learn beyond the experience itself and implement it into your daily life. So I think that, um, that was part of that experience for me. And I could have, you know, perhaps gotten somewhere with it, um, without it, but it certainly was a beautiful experience. Mm -hmm. it, it was interesting that they were, not exactly pressuring you, but they were, well, they were pressuring you, but nicely. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and I was glad that I was glad that I, I decided to say yes. Um, and in fact, I, if you'd like, I could certainly read a little bit about some of the, um, the one of the experiences that I had in that ceremony. Sure, sure. Yeah, so um, just to give some background about this, this is from Chapter 5 of the book. And um, I have, I am in this chapter, I am up in the mountains with three shamans. I'm with Amado and Juan Luis and Marco. And we have just engaged, we've just each had a cup of the San Pedro. And I'll begin. The four of us lay down in our sleeping bags and closed our eyes, waiting for the San Pedro to take effect. Time passed. I must have fallen asleep because I was suddenly jolted awake, feeling as though I had just remembered something important, something essential even, as if a thousand dreams that I had ever had but then forgotten had returned to me all at once. There was a brief moment of awareness, and then it was gone, frustratingly gone. And then in the next moment, another sensation overcame me, one that can only be described as a simultaneous splitting and adjoining of myself. While on the one hand, I was aware of having a very strong sense of emotion, many emotions, in fact, perhaps even all emotions, another part of me felt completely detached, almost clinical. It was as though I could observe my emotions in a completely objective way, while at the same time be fully subjectively saturated with feelings, ecstatic and painful and everything in between. I heard a rustling as Juan Luis got out of his sleeping bag and came over to me. Although I hadn't moved or made a sound, he had somehow known that I was awake. Later, when I asked him how he had known that I had begun the journey, he responded, San Pedro opens up a connection that is usually unconscious. That connection is always there, but we are no, not always conscious of it. He knelt on, down beside me and lowered his face to mine. What feelings are you having, Princesa? What thoughts? 
I struggled for words, partly for words in Spanish to explain what I was feeling, but mostly for words in any language to try and describe the sensation. Finally, I said, I'm happy and sad all at once, but I also feel nothing, nothing at all. How can that be? Juan Luis nodded as if pleased. Good, he said, that's good. There are no contradictions. This is the foundation. Everything is complementary. Being sad and being happy are states of mind. It's best to be in the middle, not too hot, not too cold. You have to look for a balance point. It's like when they take your temperature. If you are in the middle, you are fine. Try not to feel too happy or too sad. Seek peace of mind. He poured another cup of the San Pedro and handed it to me, nodding for me to drink. After doing so, I lay back in my sleeping bag, looking up at the colors of the moon. It was exquisite, light pinks and greens and golds all swirling together in a misty haze. How had I never seen that before? The sky itself was nothing less than miraculous, crystal clear like a big dome placed over me. How amazing they were, those streaks of constellations. Had I ever seen so many stars at one time? And then as I watched, the stars began to move, to dance. I closed my eyes, expecting them to be still when I opened them. But even then, they continued to hop around the sky like fireflies. I was overjoyed. I felt as though I had been let in on the deepest secret of the cosmos, that the stars move when no one is watching them. And yet, at the same time, as I watched them dance, seeing this unfold with my eyes wide open, there was part of my mind that knew this was not real, that it was an illusion created by the San Pedro, that the stars do not really move. As much as I wanted them to move, as much as I wanted them to be conscious and alive and joyful, another part of me reminded myself this could not be. But then I would look back up at them again, and they would be moving anyway, despite the insistence of that logical voice. And then I would wonder again if maybe they really do move, don't move, do move, don't move, after all. Which was real. Both seem real, and while on the one hand I felt euphoric, at the same time I feared that my mind would split in two from the weight of the contradiction. Moving or not moving, real or not real. The tension created in my consciousness by these two opposing thoughts reached a kind of critical mask, mass, one that I thought might be too much to withstand. But then suddenly the two thoughts in their fight for dominance seemed to wear each other out. It was then that I understood. It was both. The stars both move and don't move all at once. In that moment, I accepted fully and completely the stars' movement and non-movement as equal realities, without question or doubt or the need to make it one thing or the other. That was it, Yanantine. Captured by this vision, life, on, life took on new significance for me. It became clear how much time and energy is wasted trying to determine what was true or untrue, whether we people are wonderful or terrible, splendid or savage, or on a more personal level, whether I myself was lovable or entirely unlovable. These roles that we create for ourselves, the divine and the demonic, at what point do we stop existing as a mixture of both and become one thing or the other? It is when we are in the process of observing ourselves, of self-reflecting, of trying to figure out if we are one thing or the other and act accordingly. So that was um, part of an insight that I had in the midst of the San Pedro journey. And, you know, um, I'm not sure I could have had quite that profound an experience. I mean, I might have had an intellectual musing about it. Um, but there was something about the, the whole ceremony and the whole space that I was in, and, and I think my intent also, that really... Um, gave me an embodied feeling of the state of Yanantine. Mm -hmm. But I, I do want to say, you know, having said that, I don't believe that you need psychedelics in order to experience this. I think that anybody who has the intent, anybody who 
um, wants to experience it can simply because we are always experiencing it. And I think it's just a matter of uh, putting our attention to it and looking and, you know, every once in a while in our daily lives at this idea of complementarity and where are we being antagonistic and how might we shift that perception to one of um, harmony and complementarity. And there are certainly many different ways of getting into altered states, including meditation, drumming, um, breathing, and so on. Absolutely. And and dreaming. Yes, exactly. I often say it's kind of like, okay, I live in Maine, and if I want to go to New York City, I can take the bus, I can take the train, I can take the plane, I can walk if I want to, I can run if I want to, and all those ways I will will get me there, but I'll just have a different experience on the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting that I've been getting many, many books of recent months and and in the last few years of people having extraordinary, uh, numinous experience. When when you have an experience that you you personally you know you know that you are not crazy, although sometimes you might question it. Um, it it kind of opens a crack. Um, in your defenses and allows the magic, the mystery to come in. And, and it changes you. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, part of the wonderful teaching that I went through is it's okay to be a little crazy. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's the other thing. I think we have a, I think we're a little often, I don't, I don't want to make this too general, but in, in general, let's say, Um, I think Western culture has a fear of the contents of the mind. And I think that part of the reason we have such a antagonistic, let's say, relationship with um, altered states, whether that be psychedelics or even um, dreaming or journeying, is that um, on some level we don't trust our minds and we are bound and determined to keep them reined in because we want to be sane. We don't want to be insane and um, certainly thought sane. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yes, exactly. I mean, I think we're afraid that if we have thoughts that don't correlate with our social group, with our culture, we'll be alone, we'll be friendless. Um, it'll be, a, the world would be a scary place. Um, so, you know, one of the things that I feel like I hope people take from the book is that, you know, it's all okay. Um, you know, the journey that we take in this world, let's give ourselves and each other a big break because there is so much complexity. And, um, you know, we're, we're figuring it out. We're working through the, the stages of our existence. And, um, you know, let's, let's have room for the complementary complexity uh, rather than trying to do everything either splendidly or savagely. Mm-hmm. Let's enjoy the journey. Exactly. It was interesting in, your, in the passage that you read, where um, Amato talks about um, perceiving your your shift in consciousness being linked to you in consciousness. And I think it's um, interesting that we've just had the uh, report from the particle accelerator at CERN in Switzerland about discovering what what they're talking about in the press as the God particle. But the God particle is actually within the field of potential, the Akasha, whatever you want to call it. And I think these are just different ways of referring to the same field of consciousness. Would you agree? Um, boy, you know, I don't, I'll have to go look at the, uh, the CERN report. I think that's pretty exciting. I mean, definitely, um, 
you know, science is going to find its way in just as we all find our way in through our various means of understanding the world. And um, I think there are always great, everything is a great metaphor for each other. Um, But I don't know too, too much about that report itself, but I think that sounds kind of exciting. It is exciting. And, and listen to my interview with Irvin Laszlo, which was last week, which is quite fascinating. He's, he talks about the Akashic field. I, I just have the sense that, that everything is coming together and, and reinforcing the messages. Um, one of the messages in your book, particularly the last T in your uh, four, four-legged stool, mm-hmm. um, was about entering into a state of, well, you call it kind of nothingness, but it, it's almost a, a state of total union. How would you characterize it? Yeah, it, it's, it's, that's a tough one to talk about because it's sort of of the four T's, and I'll just repeat them so that you know people remember what they are. So we have two pi, which is the meeting, two entities meeting, tinkwe, the testing of brown boundaries between the two entities, Take, which is considered a union, or um, you know how the two entities inform one another and and create the best of themselves so much that they create a third thing, and truhi, which is the separation. And um, it was described to me this way: at least um, you arrive when at truhi when you've completed everything, and you and your yanantin have become a oneness. Because you, once you reach the take level, you are no longer two people, but one. Truhi is then the point at which your yanantin departs or when you depart from your yanantin. That separation is only the start of another, much higher level of union. Truhi represents the capacity to be yourself again once you have experienced that yanantin union. After that, you become one single person again. But in that singleness, you are no longer just yourself. You are one with the yanantin, with God, with the essence. No matter what happens, you are always one with all of that, always. And, you know, put more simply, the way I relate to Truhi, it's this level of um, not quite like this, but soulmates, let's say, where you have worked, you've worked through the first three stages, the first three T's, to the degree where you are a pair. You have cemented yourself as a Yanantin union to the extent that when you become separated, whether through death or moving in different paths of life, you will always be together. And there's no way you cannot always be together. You are um, a complete whole and a complete single at the same time, which is kind of hard to wrap your mind around, um, but but pretty remarkable. And um, the last chapter that I write about my experiences in talks about my experience of Truhi, um, which was absolute nothingness in some ways. And it was the culmination of all these years of trying to search for answers and this desire for knowledge and trying to um, make everything clear. And instead, what I got was this sort of emptiness that was a little discerning, disconcerting at first, but as it was explained to me, you let go of your need. It's sort of, I let go of all my need for answers. And in that, I let go of all my need for rights and wrongs and this and that. And, um, yeah, very difficult to talk about, um, in a sort of linear way. Well, it, 
reminds me very much of something that uh, Jeffrey Hoppe, my, uh, author of Live Your Divinity, said that we're moving out of the period of the duality consciousness into a period of new energy or new consciousness, which is the the um, uh, accepting your own divinity. So when you're talking about nothingness, that the, the complement to nothingness is everythingness. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. That's, that's a wonderful insight. I think, I think you've sort of hit it on right on the head there. It's uh, everything and nothing all at once. And that's uh, certainly not a state we often find ourselves in. We're, mm. we're often grasping for this or that. And um, it's a gift if you, can, if you can find your way to that nothingness and everythingness. So, Hillary, um, tell us where we find out more about your book. I, I just like to remind people that we've been talking to um, Dr. Hillary Webb about Yanantin and Masintin in the Andean world, complementary dualism in modern Peru. Her new book, uh, produced by University of New Mexico Press. And I, I do highly recommend it. Fascinating reading. Uh, what is your website? Yes, my website is www.hillarysweb. That's H-I-L-L-A-R-Y. S is in Sierra. W-E-B-B dot com. And um, my email address, Hillary at HillarySweb dot com. And I certainly, you know, where I'm where I'm going with this next is I'm I'm very curious in, in how other people um, in my own culture relate to these ideas and you know I've spent so much time with these ideas I've you know worked them in my, my own mind and I'm really eager to hear how other people are applying it to their lives or what their perception of these ideas are so I really um, welcome any questions or comments so you can find me there. One of the things that you said in your book is that you know, the couple are mirrors for each other. And I think as as above, so below, and vice versa, I think the Peruvian uh, worldview is, is a mirror for Western philosophy. So um, I, I uh, think it's a wonderful contribution to to any thinking person. And, and I really want to thank you for... Uh, going to the the effort of writing this, Hillary. Mm. Well, thank you for that. Um, it was it, it was a gift for me. I mean, on every level, getting to interact with Amado and Juan Luis and all the people that I interacted with, just I, I can't say enough about them. These are exquisite, wonderful, wonderful people, and it's an honor to be have been in their presence and have to been able to you know learn from them and with them, and. Um, yeah, and and just and the writing of the book as well. Also, I felt very honored to be in the presence of these ideas. So, thank you for that. And do you have a sequel in mind? Gosh, I don't know. I, I will be going back to Peru. clearly. It has to have sex in it, <laughs> right? As I say, as I said in the book, as I said in the book, that's right. They wanted my Amado and Juan Luis, and at the end of the thing, wanted to know if there was any sex in this book, and I said no, but maybe in the sequel. So. <laughs> Um, well, my fiance and I will be going back to Peru in the fall, so maybe there will be <laughs> after we're married. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, there may be a sequel. There may not. Um, I think I will probably let a bunch of time go by to see how these ideas land with me, with other people, and see what question calls to me to try and answer. Because that's really how 
with all my books. I, um, you know, I don't, I don't ever write a book because I think I have something to say. I write a book because I have a question that I want to answer. And for me, writing is the way of trying to um, unpack a question. Right. So, and I'm sure the cosmos will provide the answer. Yes, I think so, too. Hillary Webb, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. If you want an easy way to listen to the podcasts of all our shows, you can now download our mobile app to your iPhone or Android. As a bonus, it has two other tabs where you can keep up with the latest book reviews and videos appearing on our site. You'll find the link at wbxapp.com forward slash ncreview. That's wbxapp.com forward slash ncreview. And you can find it on our website as well at ncreview.com, where you can even scan the Q code right to your phone. Well, I hope you'll join us next week when our guest will be the irrepressible Monty Farber talking about his new book, Quantum Affirmations, The New Energy Science of Conscious Manifestation. And now it's time for our track of the week selected by Scott Johnson from among members of the Positive Music Association. With styles ranging from pop and rock to folk and jazz, this growing group of musicians are using music not only to entertain, but to make a positive difference in people's lives and in the world. This week we're featuring The Grand Design by Greg Tamblin. Back in 
That was the grand design from the album of that name by Greg Tamblin, a motivational humorist, singer, songwriter, speaker, author, and MC for over 20 years. Based for many years in Nashville, Greg discovered that there was no shortage of Why Me songs and began exploring ways to lighten up life's challenges with mind-expanding songs like Self-Employment Made Harder by Difficult Boss and Analog Brain in a Digital World. You can learn more about Greg on his website, gregtamblin.com. That's G-R-E-G-T-A-M-B-L-Y-N.com. To discover more great music or to join the PMA, go to positivemusicassociation.com. And to find more books and films that make you think, check out our website at mcreview.com. You'll find it a great resource for both readers and authors. And if you enjoyed our show, I hope you'll tell your friends. Well, that wraps it up for today. So until next week, I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.